see you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you today as we worship and spend time together. Um, I have switched from Hebrews for this Sunday to, uh, to give you and for us to actually to take a look at um, a passage from Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians. So we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 today, verse 12, and then into chapter 4, verses uh, 1 to 6. So we're going to read from the middle of chapter 3 into the first part of chapter 4 for our scripture reading today. We always remember, though, that this is God's word. It's God's truth. It's what he's given us to live by. We know that it's authoritative, that it's infallible, inerrant, because God can't lie to us. So it has to be the truth. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his eyes, over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim to you is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we thank you that we can look together at your word this morning, that we can rest in your truth, that we can rest in your love and mercy to us, that we can rejoice that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who's come down from heaven for us. We thank you that he lived for us and died for us. And now we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would make application to our hearts, that just as we sang a moment ago, that your Holy Spirit would open and enliven our hearts, give us love towards you and faith, and encourage us in our daily walks. For we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In this part of 2 Corinthians, you know, Paul says, we do not lose hope. He says it twice. He says it 
in first in second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 and then skip down to verse 16 he says it again in chapter 3 he said you know I am not discouraged because he says therefore since we have such a hope the Apostle Paul is talking about hope he's talking about not being discouraged and you know it seems very appropriate that he would say that when we think about the church at first at, at Corinth you know Corinth was one of those places that was a um, a very hard place to live to be um, one of the commentators said that if you thought about Singapore today Singapore and and um, and Corinth and there had some similarities uh, you know Singapore is a city that is full of business activity it's a very um, it's a very prosperous city it's a city that has uh, refining oil refining it has water purification the water there is so pure it's one of the purest places in Asia where you can just drink it out of the tap in most places you don't dare do that um, Singapore is a business place. You know, the Hong Kong Singapore Bank, H, uh, HKSB, that's one of the biggest banks in the world. Uh, you think about all of the things that go on in Singapore. Well, you've got, because it's a port city and because you've got all of this life in the city, all of this business activity, all of this, this is how Corinth was. Corinth was one of those cities where there was business activity, there was religious activity, there were people coming in. It was a prosperous city, but it was not a godly city. It was known for prostitution, it was known for sexual immorality, it was known for all kinds of practical uh, idolatry. So this is not an easy place to live. Paul says, I'm not discouraged. And why could he say that? I mean, think about that, the church at Corinth. They had all kinds of problems. We think we have problems in the modern church. Boy, just read 1 Corinthians again and open your eyes and look what he says. He says, you know, there were divisions and disunity in the church at Corinth. Corinth was one of those churches where they had broken up into parties or groups around certain preachers. This one group over here says, well, we follow Paul. This one over here says, no, we follow Peter. The group over here says, no, we like Apollos because he's so articulate. And the group over here, the super spiritual group says, we follow only Christ. So they had all these divisions in the church. And then you see that there were big moral problems there. In Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he has to, Paul has to lay down hard on them because he says, listen, you've got a kind of immorality in the church there that they don't even have among the pagans where one of the men of the church had an affair with his stepmother. Then you've got the struggle that they had over the issue of spiritual gifts and the matter of tongues. He had to write chapters on that. And then they didn't even understand what real uh, Christian love was because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, it does not brag, it is not arrogant. He has to talk to them about what real love is. And the kind of the cherry on top of the Sunday was the fact that they were always questioning 
Paul's apostleship. I mean, Paul has to come in and defend himself. I mean, here he is, an apostle. Here he is, a follower of Christ. Here he is, somebody called to the ministry by God in a supernatural way, and yet the people at Corinth are saying, well, we, we think Paul's unimpressive. His writings are sure hard, but when he gets in his physical presence is just nothing. We just don't think very much of him at all. And so he's defending himself and his apostleship with to the church, and he has to keep doing this. He says, I'm not bragging, but I, are, are they Jews? I'm a Jew. Are they sons of Abraham? So am I. Are they from the tribe of Benjamin? I am. You know, he says, I spent a night and a day in the deep. I've been persecuted by the Jews. I've been persecuted by foreigners. I've been in danger from robbers. All of these things he re brings back up to the church at Corinth, just defending his own apostleship. Well, Paul had every reason to be discouraged about the church at Corinth, but he says, I'm not. I'm not discouraged. He says, we have hope. Now, Paul says, the reason he's not discouraged, he says, I'm not discouraged because of the gospel. He says, the gospel that I've been given to preach is a gospel that will confound the wise. It will be revealed to simple people and non-intellectuals. He says the message of the gospel is one that can put down philosophical arguments and intellectual strongholds. He says it knocks them down. If you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul says, I will destroy, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise I will confound the cleverness of the clever. Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I have all my confidence in the gospel because it knocks down all of these philosophical arguments that people are bringing up. And you remember the Corinthians... You remember all the people of that area, they love to hear some new doctrine. They love to see, hear some new teaching. And on Mars Hill, you know, they would go there and they say, you've got something new to tell us. We want to sit here and listen. We want you to tell us what you believe. We're interested in philosophy. Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ knocks down these philosophical strongholds. You know, Paul says, when I came to you, I did not try to impress you with my rhetoric or my oratory, my intellectual gifts. I simply came proclaiming to you the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. So Paul is not discouraged because he says, my confidence is in the gospel. Now, in our day, many people think of the gospel and of biblical things and, and uh, scriptural teaching, and they think of that as non-intellectual. They think of it as uh, spiritual truth that's re relegated to one level and intellectual truth is down here on another, another level. But no one should think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is too simple or non-sophisticated or non-intellectual. In fact, the very opposite is true. We've seen in the last hundred years some tremendous defenders of the faith who have been very bright, strong, academic people. 
when you think about what we've seen just uh, in the last 80 years in the writings of C.S. Lewis. It used to be said when Susan and I were in college, our, our PhD professor of uh, English and literature told us you cannot get a master's degree in English literature in this country without reading C.S. Lewis. You have to read The City of God. You have to read uh, his confession, Augustine's Confessions. You have to read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. You have to read these, these books like this that deal with an intellectual um, approach to the gospel and intellectual arguments. Francis Schaeffer that I've mentioned to you many times he was the one that helped me a lot. I remember reading The God Who Is There and Escape from Reason in 1968. And I think about the fact that not only has God used men like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer or some of the more modern people that have defended the gospel, Tim Keller's books, The Reason for God. Some of these have been so well received and well accepted by our culture because they answer the arguments, the thoughts, the questions that people have about the faith. The gospel is far from non-intellectual. In fact, the more you read the scripture, the more you see the layers of truth, the more you see the things about the covenants and the promises, the more you dig into a text, you see the, the depth of scriptural theology, the more you see the, the way it all ties together, you're just amazed. You could study it for a lifetime and just barely dent the surface of the biblical, of biblical truth. You know, Paul wasn't discouraged because he said, I know that our gospel that we read, that we trust in, that we believe is a gospel that is deep, it is significant, and it is something that knocks down all the strongholds that men put up against it. And Paul wasn't discouraged because the gospel, energized by the Holy Spirit, can take away the veil of unbelief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's argument goes something like this. Paul says, whenever the Jews heard or read the Old Testament, it was like there was a veil over their faces. They could read it, they could hear the words, but they could not, they did not see how Jesus was the Messiah, how Jesus was the completion of everything that they were looking for. All they could see was that their, their own ideas about the Messiah, all they could see was this legalism that they thought that if they kept these commandments that had been laid on them so heavily, that if they somehow could keep those commandments then God would look upon them with favor and would answer their prayer and would eventually take them to heaven. But it became a religion of obligation. It became a, a religion where there were, it was like there were these oppressive yokes on their shoulder, like they were those animals that were going around in circles, like the ox grinding the corn or the wheat. They were burdened down. But Paul says, the gospel energized by the Holy Spirit will take away the blindness that you have and the veil will be lifted. And when the veil is lifted, then you can see Jesus Christ. Susan's Bible study group meets on Wednesday nights during the school year. 
And one of the things that they arranged recently was to have a Jewish background Christian come in and explain the Passover service and all about the ways that the Passover points to Jesus Christ. And of course, we know that at the Last Supper, he fulfills it and he, he brings all that into play. But this Jewish Christian woman, as she came to talk to the uh, women in Susan's Bible study, said, you know, it's so interesting that the Jews and the rabbis particularly, when they come to Isaiah 53, where it says, you know, about the suffering servant and the one who was going to be given up, chastised for our transgressions and, and all of that, and through his stripes we are healed, through his wounds we are healed. <clears throat> they don't get it. He says they look at Isaiah 53, they can't figure it out, and so they just ignore it. They just gloss right over it and go right on, and they miss Jesus Christ. And you know why? Because that veil of unbelief is still there. They can't see it because that veil of spiritual blindness is still there. And, but when the Spirit of God comes along and when He energizes the gospel and when we hear it and believe it, that veil is taken away and all of a sudden the things that we could never see, the things that we could never understand in the Scripture become more plain to us because the Holy Spirit becomes our teacher. And he teaches us the things of the Word of God. We had a friend in Marion that was basically an atheist. And he taught literature at uh, one of the high schools. And he started taking some courses at Appalachian State University. And when he did, he got a Christian professor there. And that Christian professor started witnessing to him. And when Jerry became a Christian, he said, you know, the Lord lifted my eyes so I could see. He said, all those things that I could never see or understand in the Scripture, he said, the Scripture was like a closed book to me. But when I came to Christ, the Scriptures were opened up to me, and I saw the Word of God, and I saw Jesus, and I, I, came, to be, I came to believe and trust Jesus. You see, that's what happens. The Spirit energizes works in us, causing us to be regenerated, to believe, and to understand the gospel, and to understand what the scriptures are really teaching. So, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not discouraged because I know that the gospel empowered by the Spirit opens the mind and removes the veil of unbelief. And then he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, I'm not discouraged because God's mercy has opened up this ministry to me. In other words, God's mercy gave Paul the ministry that he had. He was a minister or an apostle or a missionary, we would say, to the Gentiles. He says, God has given me the job of being an ambassador for the gospel. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making and appeal through us. God who reconciled us to himself through Christ has given us this ministry of reconciliation. Paul wasn't discouraged because he says, the job that I have is the one God has given me and I know if he gives me this job, this ministry, this calling, then he's gonna give me the power to carry it out. If God had saved Paul and given him this job, 
The truth is that nothing could stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jack Miller was a professor at Westminster Seminary, uh, maybe in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. And Jack was challenged about the fact as to whether or not he believed the gospel could affect and change anyone. And he said, yes, I do believe the gospel can change anyone. And so to prove it, he started a house church. He started a group of people meeting together for a Bible study at his house, and it became a church. And it grew into a larger church, and then some more churches, and then he went into missions. And he started going to Ireland, and then he started going to Spain, and then he started going to Uganda. Because you see, he believed that the gospel can change anybody. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change anybody. And we ought to believe that. We ought to believe the gospel is unstoppable because he's changed us. The gospel came into our lives. Christ came into our lives and he's changed us. And it's unstoppable. In 1989, a guy that I mentioned to you just a minute ago, Tim Keller, was a seminary professor. And he had been placed on a committee to search for a pastor to be sent to New York City to start a PCA church in Manhattan or in the environs there in New York City. Well, at that time, New York City was not a picnic to go to. New York City had less than 1% who would identify of the population who would identify themselves as evangelical Christians. Less than 1%. That's like I mean, I know parts of Africa that are way more Christian than that. Uh, you, think of, you think of what New York City was like in those days. He went in 1988 or 89. And people in New York looked at Christianity as narrow-minded and bigoted and outdated. And he said, You're, his friends would come up to Tim and say, don't you take this. Don't you take this job because this is going to be a hard job. It'll be, it'll be so hard that it'll break your family down and it'll be so difficult. But Tim and his wife Kathy prayed about it and they couldn't get loose from the fact that God was calling them to take it. Now, Tim said, you know, I, I, I did it with fear and trepidation, trepidation. You know, I was nervous about going to New York City. So they prayed and they went. Now, Tim, if you ever saw him, I mean, he, he was an excellent speaker. But personally, he was, uh, he's an intellectual. He, was, he graduated from Bucknell and from uh, um, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He's a very intellectual, sharp guy. could remember all these things that he read. And, you know, he, but he was, he's not a real outgoing person. He wasn't a... Southerner, he wasn't somebody who slapped you on the back and shake your hand and talk to you for 20 minutes. You know, he was, he was not the typical whatever guy that we think about as a church planter. But he had this advantage that he believed that the gospel was unstoppable. That the gospel of Jesus could take over any heart. He stayed there for 28 years. And when he retired... Redeemer Presbyterian Church that they started was really five churches and it had over 5,000 people coming. You see, he always believed and we should always believe that the gospel can change anyone and that the gospel is unstoppable. 
The next statement that Paul made about why he wasn't discouraged is in verse 2. He says, I'm not discouraged, verse 2 of chapter 4, I'm not discouraged because I'm not trying to win people to Christ by the world's methods. He says, I'm not trying to do it by the world's methods. You know, um, what do we do sometimes in the world's methods? We try, to, we try to convince people in our own power, don't we? Uh, RVG Tasker, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, wrote it like this. He says, Paul's methods were open and above board. Not for him were the subtleties of the unscrupulous politician or the subterfuges of the ingratiating salesman. He does not talk in craftiness, nor does he handle the word of God deceitfully. He does not dilute its severity to make himself popular with his hearers, nor does he confound it with human philosophies. But he proclaims it for what it is, what in fact it really is, the revealed truth. Paul knew that God's word was the truth and that's why it was powerful. And you see, that's what we believe today is we believe that God's word is powerful because it's the truth. Because it's the truth sent to us from God. And we, we know from our experience that when, you open, when your heart is open to the gospel, when you're open to the scriptures, it is the truth of God and you sense that. You know it in your heart. Then Paul said, I'm not discouraged because some men are blind. Some people are blind to the true gospel. In 2 Corinthians you know, chapter uh, 4, verses 3 and 4, listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Apostle Paul said, if some people are blind to the gospel, uh, there are basically three reasons for it. The three reasons that people are, are blind to the gospel is number one, they're blind to the gospel because of the results of the fall. You know, the fall has affected every person that's ever been on earth. The fall has affected us, everyone but Jesus. The fall has affected us because, you know, what's happened, we fell into sin and our natures were changed. Adam and Eve sinned and their natures were changed and that fallen nature has been passed down to all of us. That's why we're sinful creatures is because we have that fallen nature. We're born into this world with a nature that's self-focused, not God-focused. So we're always looking for what does it for us, what makes us happy, what pleases us. Human beings suppress the knowledge of God and we push it down because we don't want, we don't want to please God. We want to please ourselves. And if we have to be dependent on God, then we may have to change our lives and do things differently. Second reason that we're blind, people are blind to the gospel is because we harden our hearts in unbelief. So not only is it the consequence of the fall, but it's the consequence of our own sin. We sin against God. We harden our hearts. We choose our own ways. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We've turned to our own ways and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We know that that's what Isaiah taught over and over again. We harden our hearts against God because we see him as the enemy of our happiness. And we don't want to follow his demands or his rules for our lives. Therefore, we put, it, put him away. Um, I think it was Aldous Huxley that said that he wouldn't, believe, wouldn't become a Christian because he would have to change his life. He would have to operate differently. God is the one who has reminded us that we sin against him and we harden our hearts in unbelief from our own personal responsibility, our own sin nature, our own will. But humanity is also blinded to the gospel because of God's judgment. God has allowed Satan, it says here in this chapter, to blind the minds of those that refuse to believe. They said, I don't want to have God in my mind or heart anymore. And after a certain point in time, and only God knows that point, but God says, okay, you don't want me in your heart and life? I'll help you. I will close the door. I'll harden your hearts. Pharaoh hardened his heart, turned against God, refused to believe, and then God hardens his heart. And God hardens his heart to refuse to let the Jews go. We see the hardening act as a work of God's judgment. Now, that's a scary thing to think about, but it's there. It's there in the scripture. Why are people perishing without the gospel all over the world? Because of the fall and the consequences of it. Because of the unbelief when we sin against God by hardening our hearts. And because of God allowing Satan to, to blind and harden the hearts of those who refuse to believe at all. In 1 John, you know, there's a scary passage in there where John talks about, he says, there, there are people that have committed the sin unto death. And he said, you shouldn't pray, don't pray for them. You know, don't pray for them because they've committed the sin unto death. And what is that? Well, that's where someone senses the drawing of the Holy Spirit and they reject that work of the Spirit and harden their heart and say, I do not want God in my life ever at all. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is turning against what the Spirit is revealing to us in Jesus. And when they turn against that and harden their heart against that and say, I don't want that, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And there, that's a terrible place to be. We don't want to see that. We don't want to even think about it. But John says, there are people who have committed the sin unto death, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, Paul wasn't discouraged, though, because his message was all about Jesus Christ the Lord. You see, his message is all about Jesus Christ the Lord. He says, we don't preach ourselves. He says, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Notice the humility there. He says, we don't preach ourselves. You know, you go back and look in some of these movements of, that have gone on even in the last hundred years and you see these preachers pop up and what are they preaching? They're preaching themselves. They're preaching themselves or they're preaching a, a gospel of prosperity. Oh, it's all about you. You just name it and you can claim it. 
You want to be rich? You just go get it, you know? Just pray for it and it's going to come. There was a guy in Charlotte who used to preach that way and every now and again he would send people Cadillacs that rode into the church, you know? He'd send them a Cadillac and then they'd say, Oh, I prayed. I named it. I claimed it. God sent me a Cadillac. Well, you know, that kept that church in believing people, believing the false gospel of prosperity. And there have been movements like that throughout history where people came along and all they did was they preached themselves. But what does Paul say? I don't preach ourselves. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ only. We preach Jesus Christ only and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He preached Jesus Christ, the, the Lord. He preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, recently, I was reading, this past week, I was reading from Acts 13, a sermon that Paul preached there. And, you know, Paul preached this sermon in Antioch, and he said he preached Jesus as the one promised by the fathers. He preached Jesus as the one born of the Father. He preached Jesus as the one promised that death couldn't hold him because he said, David says in the Psalms, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And it's through this Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things that the law of Moses couldn't free you. See, Paul's preaching a freedom in the gospel, but it's not a gospel about him. It's a gospel about Jesus. It's the gospel about Jesus who died for us and who was raised for us and that death couldn't hold because he conquered death and threw it off just like he threw off those grave clothes. Through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and freedom that the Jewish law and nothing of the Jewish faith could could give you. When Paul preached Jesus, he preached Jesus as Lord, and that was his only message. He focused everything, the whole spotlight was on Jesus. Now this is only right, isn't it? This is only right because that was, that's what the gospel is. God is the one who has let the light of the gospel shine in the darkness of our lives. God is the one who reached out to us. God is the one who brought the light of the gospel into us just like he made that bright light shine on Paul the day he was going to Damascus. God let the bright light of the glory of the gospel of Christ shine into our lives and he revealed the glory of his son Jesus Christ to us and that light of the gospel has shown in our hearts. All throughout this passage, Paul has talked about or alluded to Moses and he, and he went to that place where Moses was getting the law up on the mountain and he was full of this glory. And when he went into the tent, he was full of the glory of God shining on his face. Moses, you know, at first tried to cover up his face because he didn't want the people to be blown away by the glory of God that was on his face. And then he put that on there, Paul tells us, because... He wanted to cover up that the glory was going away. The glory of God that had been shining on his face was going away. But now he says, when we look at Jesus, we see the one greater than Moses. We see the one who has shined the light of the gospel into our faces 
so that we could see Jesus Christ and know him as Lord and Savior. That we see the one who is full of glory. That we see the one that is not just condemning us with the law, but we see the one that is revealing to us the grace and the love of God for us as sinners, as people in need of the gospel. He has shown that grace in our hearts and he's revealed to us the knowledge of God's glory. You know, God sent the Father sent Jesus to pay that just penalty for our sins. He sent him to die as the just sacrifice for what our sins have cost. Yet God sent Jesus to gloriously deliver us and to conquer death and hell forever. So we don't have to fear death. So we don't have to be afraid when it comes. So that we, because we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And that's a glory that will never fade away, is it? You know, Paul wasn't discouraged, and we shouldn't be discouraged either, because just like in John chapter 3, you know, John says, remember the people in the Israel. What did they do? When they were bitten by the serpents, they looked up to the bronze serpent on the pole. They looked up and they lived. And he said, so, if we look up to Jesus, if we look at the glory of God in the face of Jesus, then we'll live and we'll live by faith in Him and live forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the glory that You have revealed to us in Jesus Christ, the glory of Your Son, the glory of the Savior that You appointed for us, the glory that you, of the God-man that came from heaven for us to live for us and die for us and take our place on the cross. We thank You for His death and resurrection for his exaltation to your right hand, where he is praying for us even now. We thank you for that. We thank you for life. We thank you that we can have the same message as Paul, that we can preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Father, in his name we pray. Amen.